Hi, everyone. And by that, I just mean, hi, Trina. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, everyone. And by that, I mean just Erica, because it's just the two of us sitting in this room. Because Um, this is take two of the first episode of Popject, an object podcast where we talk about different objects throughout architecture and architectural history that interest us and invoke emotions in us and make us feel things. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Caleb Martin Rosenthal for all the music that you hear in this podcast. We love you, Caleb. And so let us bring you back to where this journey began. There's this bookshelf. There's this bookshelf. In Rodney's, our favorite bookstore. And on this bookshelf in the back, there's all these different signatures And every single signature is like commemorating in some way who the other person was with. Like the person who wrote it writes like MJ plus LC equals book lovers forever or something. Yeah. Um, And we've written on there too. You know, Trina Hart Erica was here. Right. With a Z. Or like I, my best friend and I are here. Right. And then we came back and people had wrote little arrows. Pointing to that. Pointing to I'm here with my best friend. And they wrote me too. Right. It's literally so cute. I thought that was the cutest thing ever. It is cute. And I guess it's like, what are two people rambling about a bookshelf and its engravings? What, what could they possibly have to say about architecture? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. For this episode, our first episode, we not only wanted to bring in our origin story, but we also wanted to talk about all the different ways that architecture can be extremely emotional. And it's actually a lot more emotional than we think. We wanted to connect all of the ways that people memorialize each other to the ways that people build things and how people actually build things with that kind of love in mind. Our first example, I think I just want you to picture white marble and on scratched into the little white marble is sj plus mm mm-hmm. forever forever that, <laughs> that is and, so sweet and that stands for shah jahan and Mumtaz mahal <laughs> <laughs> the original the original lovers mm-hmm. well that's not true there's a lot Maybe of other they ones they were like a couple iterations right down the line. they were like they were like Original 3.0. 3.0 in 1632. Right, exactly. Every So, so what, what do we have to say about that? Yeah. Well, so the Taj Mahal, which is what we are referring what to. What we're referring to in case you didn't realize. The Taj realize. Mahal, the famed building. In Agra, in India, it's a mausoleum. And it was commissioned in 1632 by the Emperor Shah Jahan mm-hmm. as a, bur- a burial a burial place yes, <laughs> for his beloved wife, Mumtaz Mahal, who actually was his favorite of like four wives, but right. And she died after giving birth to the couple's 14th child. Mm-hmm. And Shah Jahan was just so sad. He was really sad. And I mean, I would say sad is maybe the wrong maybe word. Maybe the wrong word. He was grief stricken, right? Yeah. <laughs> he was, no. wasn't like, oh man, I lost <laughs> my place in line. <laughs> he was like, damn, my wife is dead. Wait, yeah. sorry. That's so <laughs> severe. And it's like, he was, yeah, he was sad. He, he was, was sad. He was grieving. He was grieving. Right? And in his grief process, he commissioned this building and that in the in the marble, he inlaid all these stones or he commissioned to have these stones mm-hmm. inlaid. Um, and these designs and also the stones were some of Mumtaz's favorite flowers. And now they're like permanent, permanent inlays. And if yeah. you, I mean, you probably can't go in now, you know, Corona outlaws, but <laughs> I, I went there as a, as a kid 
to walk in, you have to wear these scrubs or these like things on your feet, like kind of knitted things so that you don't, yeah. So that you don't, um, dirty the floor. But now as the building has been sitting, you know, for a while and there's all this, like, there's like factories and stuff around in Agra, it actually has experienced a great deal of, you know, acid pollution on the walls. So the walls are stained. But if you go inside and you look at the inlays inside, you'll find that those things are perfectly intact. Mm -hmm. And Mumtaz Mahal's actual grave is way below the surface of the actual structure that is made to signify her grave. So it's really like this beautiful... It's like one of the most romantic gestures. It it also, it's very interesting to me how this romantic gesture has kind of grown over time indirectly because of all these measures that are being taken to keep it clean. Exactly. It's like it gets more, it gets even more important as and, time is And gone more on. precious right. as like the anti-pollution laws and the traffic directions are right, changed. Right, exactly. To keep all these walls perfectly clean and sparkling for the purpose of, if we're being honest, like tourism and capitalism. Well, yeah, it's like a wonder of the world at this point. But at the same time, if you really want to like track it backwards, it's like, oh, it's for It was for this one person, right? And isn't that like, that's kind of crazy. It's crazy how one thing is actually, one thing can create so much knowledge and so much history. But ultimately, if you trace its roots back, sometimes the end of that production isn't even to the ends of like creating knowledge or creating a monument. Like Mm -hmm. he really just wanted to make something, you know, to to memorialize that love or or commemorate her. Yeah. And something I, I have been thinking about is it's intriguing to me and also kind of tragic that it happened after she died. Like yeah. she didn't see that commemoration. And I don't know personally if there were ways that he commemorated her while she was living, but mm-hmm. like, do you think she, if she was alive, she'd be like, <laughs> Oh sick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or would she be like, this, this is, is a lot. lot. <laughs> <laughs> you do a lot. Ooh. <laughs> or like, I don't even know if I like you like that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was casual. I don't right. Know. I thought this was casual. We're just seeing each other. We're not dating. We're not married. Like, just like, you know, or I, like I wonder. She had like three other wives. Right. Was she like, yo, I didn't even realize that was your favorite. Right. If she was <laughs> like what about these guys like literally I mean obviously we're being so disrespectful but I I do think um yeah so much of the commemoration and things we do and and the next example also we're going to talk about is um you know like something that's made out of love for someone who doesn't necessarily appreciate it or is you know past the point of being able to appreciate it for example it it has been beheaded so So, <laughs> yeah. So that brings us to something that's kind of distantly related to architecture. Please tell me about it, Erica. I got to know. I know it's pretty far away from the built environment, but I think it's pretty cool. There's this herbalist named Elizabeth Blackwell who mm-hmm. lived in like also maybe the 1600s. I don't really know. I should find that out. We can look it up. She was <laughs> born in 1821, so I don't think okay. it was the 1600s. No. <laughs> no. She was a physician. <laughs> Originally, she she was not a physician. She was just she was just kind of a wealthy woman. <laughs> right. And she was married to this man who practiced as a physician but had no training and was basically just a skeevy guy. And this skeevy guy who she loved so much got arrested. And in order to pay off his debt and release him from prison, Elizabeth Blackwell decided to learn the entire craft of 
botanical illustrations. She couldn't think of an easier way. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. This like, was the I way that she was like. She took this roundabout. This, right. It's <laughs> quite roundabout. She said, I have to release my husband from prison. So I'm going to learn an entire discipline. <laughs> yeah, that is exactly what she said. And she created this volume of botanical illustrations and knowledge about plants and like herbal um, remedies at the time, which was honestly groundbreaking because there were no other collections of illustrations and um, information together so that the common person could identify these herbals in their, you know, local park or right. whatever. They were kind of, they were like, what is that plant? There they was could no find way out. No, right. And so it was pretty significant and it did raise enough money to release him from prison. But then he left her pretty much right away. Oh my God. And what? That's like so crazy. I cannot believe. Anyway, I really cannot believe people are like Man. that. You know, yeah, men, I wasn't going right? to say it, but yeah, I was right. <laughs> but also it's like men, but then also it's like, okay, Shah Jahan built the Taj Mahal. You know what I mean? Like two yeah. opposite spectrums of men. Right. But at the same the, time, the, sucks. The, the, the duality of... The duality our, of man. As they say, the duality of man. Right. So Elizabeth Blackwell's husband left her, went to like Sweden or something. He also then got involved in more conspiracies and got beheaded pretty quickly. <laughs> no doubt. And there we have Elizabeth Blackwell with this huge book that she's made, this compilation of knowledge that has furthered the discipline of botany like historically very far um, <laughs> and made it a common knowledge and just really like was a big project. But the person that she made it for this big book that has all of this love embedded in it because she made it to release her husband from prison, he is gone. And I can only imagine that this book has so much scorn in it for her now. Right, like she must right, looking back have been so pissed off. <laughs> right. Maybe she's like haunting the entire field of botany. Of botany because right. like he, you know. He literally left her. He literally left her. And so my thought is that all of this knowledge that she put into the field has all of this emotion embedded in it. And all of this emotion therefore has actual consequences on right. the knowledge that was produced at the time. Right. And it impacted what gets put in textbooks at the time. And honestly, probably textbooks now. And totally. this, the style of botanical illustrations right. was solidified in that, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of decades. And I think all of those things are very visible because that's like the knowledge that people know about botany. But then right. the thing that's hidden is the fact that the driving factor behind creating all of this knowledge was this guy, emotion, right. this marriage, this love that then got destroyed because he left. Right. <laughs> and I just think that it's really interesting that that can happen. That can happen. And the purpose that the book ended up serving was not at all her end. I mean, I guess it did succeed in releasing him from prison, but the eventual like the thing she wanted to, to she be wanted with him didn't happen, didn't happen from her project here. Yeah. And it it's was really sad. just all the scientific knowledge was really just for one person, but now it's scientific knowledge and right. it's not for their love. Not for their love. <laughs> and I think that that's something Erica and I often joke about the fact that we're so emotional and we gush <laughs> about everything. And sometimes, you know, it makes me feel kind of childish, yeah. juvenile almost to be so caught up in 
feelings. And also like, we are both pretty hopeless romantics <laughs> in every sense of the word. Very and so, much so it's really easy for us to get carried away. <laughs> um, but also I think one of the things that I've been so grateful for in the process of working on this project with you has been seeing the way that our like attention to emotion has actually translated into direct knowledge. Like it actually pays to pay attention to people's feelings, not yeah. in a monetary sense. We're not getting paid necessarily. <laughs> We're getting paid by love and appreciation <laughs> for each other. <laughs> yes. But I mean, more so paying attention to the way people feel about things has been the guiding factor in so much of what we have found. Mm -hmm. Part of our reasoning for doing this project at all is to like legitimize or just notice the fact that there's so much emotion in literally everything and that when that gets kind of shoved away by like or like separated you know like yeah. the idea that it's not all one thing yeah it is important to remember that all of these people mm -hmm. had feelings behind why they were doing things yeah. so here we have two examples <laughs> motivated by romantic love yeah and i'm gonna transition yeah <laughs> gonna transition us to our next portion which is what happens when you're building something for people that you're not necessarily like romantically involved with, but you have care for, or even people you don't even personally know? Mm -hmm. Love can also happen in built environments in much more day-to-day -day ways, you know, like it's not always this grand sweeping gesture, but it's equally important. And one example that I wanted to bring up, an object, if you will, <laughs> is the idea of a community oven or a tandoor, which is like a, a big clay oven. And it's kind of originates from Punjab and it's kind of moved around the country, India. But also it's also not just an Indian concept. Like I, as I was researching this, I found that it's kind of all over the world. I think the only places that don't really have it are the U.S. And even in the U.S., we've actually had excavations of these communal ovens. So in India, it's called a tandoor. But then in Syria, in Damascus, it's called a tanner. Um, I'm probably not saying it completely correctly. But so and, and as I was looking it up, I was, <laughs> I was finding all these different names for this community oven that all kind of came from this root of the tandoor. But it was like named, you know, like... Tanner, yeah. Tanner, you know, um, yeah. and there's also, there's just all these different examples of it. Anyway, in any case, the idea of a tandoor or a tanner in um, Syria is that everybody kind of brings their bread to the oven, like, and it's a communal oven. So it's like right in the middle of the city. In the case of Punjab, like it's a rural oven. So it might be outside in a courtyard and then people come and bring their bread and they stick their naan, which is like an Indian bread on the, on the sides of the walls. And then it cooks basically through just sustained heat. Like there's a fire at the bottom and it goes up. And then the good thing is that you don't have to relight it. So after it's been lit, it stays warm for quite a while. And so people just kind of come in and out to cook with this. And yeah, as we kind of move to cities, they become individualized by household or by kitchen but where it all derived from is the idea that there was going to be just like this one oven that everybody could use. I've always been really interested in the tandoor because that's how I grew up seeing it. Like as a kid, I had a lot of food that was cooked in it, but it was never the same because it's in the States. Mm -hmm. And it's not like a communal oven per se, but it's like a small version of it that yeah. creates the smoky effect of that kind of oven. Mm -hmm. 
So it's mainly for flavor, not so much for the community of it. But I thought it was really interesting and also really beautiful because you're building it. You know, you're like building that kind of oven into your structure and into your plan even of the city. So in Morocco, it's called a farine. I think I might also be saying that wrong, but they, they're public ovens and people bring bread, but they also bring like green peppers and tomatoes and they bring like fish and sardines and swordfish and things like that as well. And I was reading this article about it from the New York Times, which my professor Diana Martinez sent me when I asked her <laughs> if she knew anybody. I obviously sent the most specific email where I was like, do you know anybody in paleontology or archaeology that could potentially speak to the idea of a stone or an oven, like literally insane email that I sent 1 a.m. Saturday night could have been doing anything else. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, in this article, it said that because it's a public oven, it also becomes a space of announcement because people will oh. bring like foods that are like meant to signify an important event and might oh, and like wow. be cooking it in the oven and not necessarily mean to be announcing it to the whole town <laughs> or the whole village. But then everybody knows what's up because you're not going to make that fancy dish for an everyday <laughs> snack. So then suddenly like, you've like oh announced God. your kid's wedding. Someone's <laughs> getting married. Do you see those biscuits? Dude, literally. Literally. I wonder who they kiss. It's literally like, who did they kiss? Like the oven is the site of where you find out. It's crazy. (laughs) So, um, oh my God. It's like so emotional and funny (laughs) to me that that happens. (laughs) People will just find out because coming out as gay because I brought an apple to the community. Right, exactly. (laughs) It's like, right, exactly. The community oven is quite the site. Um, and so, yeah, I just really think it's such a funny, funny little concept. And even going further back than that in the American antiquity, I found that Hunters and gatherers also used to build these, not necessarily like thundurs or tanners. There used to be these like holes in the ground, basically, that hunters and gatherers used to use for cooking. And then they would leave that there for the next person, next, you know, group of people because they would travel around nomadically the next group of people to find it and cook in it. And unless it was, you know, naturally sealed, it was open for for use. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think it's so beautiful. And to tie kind of all of that together. The idea of the community oven and the idea of like building a, a pit like that. It's like, to what end? Like, why not just have an oven for you and your family or just an oven for you, which is kind of like what we have now, mm-hmm. more or less, at least in this part of the world. Right. And it's like, because everybody wants to be able to take care of each other. Yeah. And it's more normal, you know, to want that <laughs> than to want <laughs> to live kind of in nuclear setups. Yeah. And the connection I wanted to bring to the present is that interestingly enough, especially in American households and setups, it's like everyone is kind of living in a nuclear setting. And so the way we cook is different too. We don't have community ovens and we especially don't have earthen ovens. We have like gas stoves. It changes the way we eat and it changes the way we cook Mm -hmm. and we cook more for ourselves than we cook for everyone altogether. Yeah. And as I was kind of thinking about that, I also researched that a lot of European and American folks have started to <laughs> basically like start initiatives for community ovens called like, like I found one organization called like Lovins or whatever, which is cute, very cute. <laughs> 
But basically what they do is they go in and install different ovens for the community. And there's all these articles that are like, whoa, crazy concept. This is so crazy. Like, oh my God, this is bringing people together. So weird. But the truth is that other parts of the world, and I'm sure there are more examples than the three I listed, have been doing that for ages and still to this day do it. Mm -hmm. And it's all, and it comes down to just a a mentality of caring Mm -hmm. for one another. And maybe I am projecting that a bit, but I think that this idea that you can build love into the structures you make Mm -hmm. is really important. Maybe there are politics around the oven too. (laughs) You know, maybe, maybe people get mad. People are like, I was meant to cook my naan and you came in and you took my spot. You know what I mean? Like, obviously there's things that I don't know (laughs) about that, but I think I yearn for the idea of a, of like a community based kind of love because I'm like wouldn't it be so cool if we could build something where everyone is taken care of yeah and build something where that form of care becomes incorporated into how everyone lives right right exactly which brings us to our next topic actually (laughs) related to kind of the idea of building in care into your mm-hmm. into your structures, I want to give a hefty introduction <laughs> to Erica's research project, which she did when she was studying in Greece. When I was studying abroad. When she was studying abroad, but really, really when you were like living in Greece. Yeah. So very different from the idea of a community oven, but still connected by this thread. Of buildings and structures that incorporate care for others. Exactly. So imagine you're on a street in Athens, in Greece, and you look down the street and on both sides of you, there are these four or five stories of buildings and just parallel lines upon parallel lines of balconies down the entire street. It's just... That's beautiful. Yeah. It's really pretty. And everyone kind of customizes it in a certain way and has plants and their laundry and everything is really beautiful and personal. But the process through which these balconies and this parallel lines pattern of almost ubiquitous buildings Mm -hmm. arose is because of some interesting historical context in Athens in which there were, in Greece, there were a handful of wars, there was a dictatorship, there was foreign occupation, there was massive influxes of population from Turkey and from like rural Greece into the city center of Athens. But at the time, after all of these tumultuous leadership changes and all of these problems in Greece, the government did not have enough money to like urban plan or build housing for these huge groups of people that were coming into the city. Right. And so the Greek government essentially handed the city planning down to the people that were moving in and created these laws that were called anti-parochy laws and essentially families or groups of people, but it was usually families because that's where the money was pooled. Families could purchase a plot of land and just build upwards and use the building criteria that we kind of looked at in some of our architecture classes from Lake Corbusier because mm-hmm. it was the domino <laughs> yeah. buildings. And essentially the domino building plan is like, it's a blank slate. It's just floors that are stacked up and you can do 
anything you really is want. Like, is it like the thing with the free plan? Basically? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a free plan and it it's just those... like a rectangle. Mm-hmm. The building system is designed to be this quick skeleton of like iron steel beams to just support basically a rectangle mm-hmm. that people can live in and put porches on and things like that. And it seemed to solve all of Greece's problems at the time. Like the citizens became homeowners so they could make money for their families. Labor became abundant because anyone really could join the construction efforts for these buildings because they were simple. Mm -hmm. So people were able to get jobs and the state, like the government was able to refocus and rebuild its like stuff, (laughs) what the government was doing. Rebuild its stuff. Rebuild itself. (laughs) And uh, essentially what this did was it put families at the center of like real estate, basically, and buildings. And it changed the way that privacy and closeness and texture literally of the city, because all of the buildings basically looked the same because it was just like the bunch of uncles building it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's so cute. Yeah. (laughs) A bunch of uncles. (laughs) Yeah. And so what this did basically was you had buildings in this. These laws were created in the 1920s and and 40s. So what I'm talking about is this period in the middle of the 1900s where this generation of families would just live in a building together and it would just be cousins and families and brothers living vertically Mm -hmm. in a single building called Polikatikia, I believe is how it's said. I am not Greek. (laughs) But, and they have all these porches and then because it's families living vertically in these buildings, they created a kind of basket pulley system Mm -hmm. to connect each balcony. And you could just pull on these pulleys, which were called eucalyptus and bring bread and vegetables and blankets or whatever item you wanted to share with your family members and bring them up and down without, you know, leaving your little porch but wow. you can just shout up to your auntie and say, hey, do you want some bread that I just made? And you lift it up on this pulley. And so it was this way that families were able to take care of each other and live together. And it was built into the structure where they had this continuous line of like sharing mm-hmm. and giving to each other. That's really beautiful. It is really cool. Is that, does it still, is it still like that when you, when you were there, did mm-hmm. you see it? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> it is pretty cool. And the so the thing is that now it's obviously 2020 and there have been some generations since the generation that built in and moved into these buildings. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say 2020 before. Isn't that weird? I think everyone is always saying 2020. 2020. Anyway, it's a weird year. It's a weird year. It's a weird year. I lost track of the number of right. years. I had to really <laughs> count it out. <laughs> 2000. There's been exactly 2020 years. Nothing before then. Yeah. Yeah. And so this kind of system of living with your families distilled a little bit and got a little bit like diluted because like I focused on with this project that I did, I focused on women mostly because with the closeness and the like shared aspect of these buildings, women were kind of tasked to be caretakers more than I think I am familiar with. And the cultural norm essentially was that you wouldn't leave that building and you would stay there and take care of your aging relatives. And you were kind of bound to this apartment building in this home. And so the choice to like depart or live elsewhere or move out with your kids or your spouse was a very intentional choice for a lot of women in Athens. And 
from my professors that I spoke to, it was, it was like a, a very direct, almost like vocabulary to express your closeness to your family. It was like mm-hmm. whether or not you lived in the same building. Oh, wow. Cause it directly, it like translates to people because yes. they know mm-hmm. like if and you're living apart from them, they'll be like, Oh, you're like, Oh, so oh, you're, you're not, you're really living apart. Mm-hmm. And not only are you really living apart, you're also separated from the literal means of caring for each other wow. because you can't just walk up the stairs and like, help them or you can't just bring up food on the on the in the basket and so the means of expressing closeness to your family was really tied to architecture because of the way these buildings were created and the way that people express their love through the buildings and then if you want to become independent from your family in any way it's a very drastic move wow. because you're separated from as i was saying you're separated from like the means of care i think people think that I don't know. The way you feel about others and the way you care about others is like separate from the way you do things. Mm -hmm. But I think it's so direct, such Mm -hmm. a direct link. Yeah. And also, I remember you mentioning that this pulley system you're talking about is something that the residents of these buildings created for themselves. Mm -hmm. Like that wasn't a part that because they were given no guidance from the government at all. And so they this was a system that they made up. Mm hmm. Which is really beautiful. Yeah. People just added on to these buildings whenever they could. Like there are these, there's this uh, specific type of floor called panosicoma floors that are like just built higher and like sloped off of the side of the building because people wanted to just make their buildings and their families bigger. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they just added space. That's um, and people were able to, to just like build what they wanted to into these buildings. And if they were like, Oh, we need another floor or we need a pulley system. They just added it on because they were given that autonomy over their building. That's really sweet. Yeah. Yeah. But hidden in these expressions of care is a system that ties the value of women to ownership and housing. And that building space becomes attached to what women are worth within their family and what ability they have to make their own life outside of that. I think also something I'm remembering now in my research about (laughs) ovens, (laughs) obviously I've been Google searching ovens for the last three days, but sometimes the operation of these like earthen ovens or like clay baked ovens or whatever are operated by like elder women of the neighborhood. And so when there's no one to operate them also, like if people don't feel like they can operate them, then they'll just kind of lay dormant. You know, like there are people who are trained to to operate them, but in a sense, it also ties people to that tradition. Mm -hmm. Like as much as we would all like to believe that acts of care and acts of community can happen organically or like come out of thin air, they have to be coordinated. Mm -hmm. Like they have to happen through some system. Yes. And similar to your project, it's like people can love and care for each other. But if there isn't a built system in place to make it happen, then it might not happen Mm -hmm. or it'll happen in a much less systematic way. I think that these examples are examples of examples of love. Yeah. In the same way that big gestures of like, I think it's comparable to the Taj Mahal, but it's Mm -hmm. not as monumental, but it is like just as great. Right. Wow. Wow. I think to finish us, finish us off, I think that obviously because of coronavirus, we are pretty disconnected from forms of care 
And people are living alone in more ways than we have before, especially now. We're reckoning with this loneliness, which is literally built into our buildings. You know, you're not going to be in a communal space with people unless you live in the same building as them. So it's important for us to think about examples and ground ourselves in examples of when in history people have been together and have built that togetherness into their structures. That is really romantic to me. And I romanticize togetherness so much more because I think I really miss it. And I think that especially American architecture is, is pretty built and based on, you know, the individual. Mm-hmm. Like even if we don't have baskets connecting our balconies yeah. and community ovens and stuff, we still... I can bring you banana bread, you, which I did, you this, did morning. this morning. And you can also bring me peanut butter cups, which you did this morning. I did. And, it'll, and it's still just as sweet. We've recorded this whole thing with masks on, which is pretty dystopic, but we are going to move on from it. Thank you for listening. Do you have anything else to say? The last thing I'll say is the next time you look at a bookshelf with people's names on them. Or like a tree with a heart in it. Right. I hope you think of the Taj Mahal and the Greek pulley system (laughs) and of community ovens and of all the ways that we take care of each other. Yeah. Until next time, this is Popject. And I'm Jack Podcast. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Bye. Bye.